When old films are taken down from the shelf and restored for re-release, critics adopt certain default positions. A film that was initially dismissed may now be reappraised as ahead of its time. Jean Renoir's The Rules of the Game, Michael Powell's Peeping Tom, or Ridley Scott's Blade Runner. On the other hand, a film that was initially praised may now be regarded as showing its age. Such as Hugh Hudson's Chariots of Fire, Richard Attenborough's Gandhi, or Sam Mendes' American Beauty. And then there is a certain type of film that was met with near-universal acclaim and is now deemed more relevant than ever. Despite it being a masterpiece, it is regrettable that Robert Altman's Nashville falls into that final group. Now, after years in the making, Robert Altman brings the first film along the way to Nashville with 24. Come, 24 of your very favourite stars. David Arkin, Barbara Baxter, Ned Beatty in Nashville and the fabulous performances of Aaron Black, Ronnie Blakely, Timothy Brown in Nashville, along with the spectacular Geraldine Kaplan, Robert Bochy in Nashville, and the exciting appearances of Shelley Duvall, Nashville takes place in the five days leading up to the city's music festival, and over its course, Altman and a screenwriter, Gene Tewksbury, follow nearly two dozen characters as they wind their individual and crisscrossing paths within the pageant. Those plotlines are intricate, yet the road to making the film was surprisingly straightforward. Altman had been offered a script about the music scene, but upon reading it, said he neither liked the story nor country and western. However, he did admit that there was something about Nashville's festival that was intriguing. So he asked Tewksbury to go to Tennessee State Capitol to research a possible movie. After visiting the Grand Old Opry, Tewksbury decided, instead of following a single character's journey from obscurity to the main stage, she would structure the story around Altman's Oscar-winning satire, M.A.S.H., where the location fabricated the foreground, midground, and background of the various characters winding their way across the screen. While Tewksbury was doing that, Altman was invited to a party in New York by a man he had never met before. Jerry Weintraub was one of the biggest figures in the music industry and a manager who handled a galaxy of stars. Lord Almighty, I feel my temperature rising. I get no kick from champagne Mere alcohol doesn't thrill me at all So tell me why should it be true That I get a kick out of you Song, song Everybody knows one Song, song, blue Every garden grows warm 
So why did Weintraub invite Altman to his party? Weintraub was a maverick, and so was Altman. He never had any time for studio structures, preferring instead to secure independent financing and forego the endless stream of notes, observations, obfuscations and alterations executives feel as their function. And so, meeting Weintraub, Altman pitched him an idea of a movie set at the National Festival. For his part, Weintraub was eager to get into the movie business, but when he read the script, he admitted to not getting it. Too many characters, too many plots, too many things going on. Still, Weintraub was a big admirer of Altman's and had faith that the Maverick knew precisely what he was doing. So Weintraub decided to finance the film himself. And that was that. Altman, whose career was then in its zenith, had no problem in attracting his enormous cast. Actors were lining up outside his office, willing to work for practically nothing. In fact, given Altman's success, and given the fact that he was now making a movie set in a city synonymous with music, and given Weintraub's connection with the music world, it was obvious that Altman would not only cast real musicians, but the biggest country and western stars available. But if you were to ask any devotee of country music, any Nashvillian, anyone who has any music knowledge at all, they will tell you that almost all of the music and musicians Altman selected were of astonishingly modest talent. There are, of course, a few exceptions, most notably Ronnie Blakely. I still hear Daddy singing his old army songs. We laugh and count horses as we drove along. We were young men, we were together. We could bear floods and fire and bad weather. And now that I'm older, grown up on my own, I still love Mom and Daddy best my home. And Keith Carradine's Oscar winning song, I'm Easy. It's not my way to love you just when no one's looking. It's not my way to take your hand if I'm not sure. It's not my way to let you see what's going on inside of me When it's a love you won't be needing, you're not free Which begs the question, considering Altman wanted to make a musical, why did he decide to focus on characters who would never get anywhere near the main stage of the festival? Because Altman had made a career of working his way through traditional Hollywood genres with the sole intention of overturning and exposing the absurdities of their restrictive formulas. Whether it was the Western with McCabe and Mrs. Miller, Detective Mystery with The Long Goodbye and Gangster Picture with Thieves Like Us, or setting a comedy in war-torn Korea with M.A.S.H., Altman subverted, satirised and mocked the conventions that had become the pillars of Hollywood storytelling. Ever the iconoclast, Altman held nothing sacred. And so when it came to the musical, and in particular, music that came from and played to the heartland of America, he was intenting on using it to say something wider about American culture. 
And this is where Altman's film feels more relevant than ever. Barbara Jean, how are you? Thank you, Right here for Oh, thank you, Tennessee Twirlers, And thank you, Franklin High School Band. I think you kids get better every year. All right, Twirlers, let's twirl! Altman began filming in July 1974, just a few weeks prior to Richard Nixon being forced to resign as the nation's 37th president because of the shame and disgrace he had brought to the office with the Watergate scandal. And while National was released the following June, that was almost a full year in advance of the United States celebrating the bicentenary of its independence and thus the birth of its nationhood. Which means that Nashville was screening to a public that was in a reflective mood, questioning how far it had come or strayed from the ideals of the Founding Fathers. Altman directed over 30 feature films, and frequently they captured a seismic shift, a turning point where one culture or era gives way to another. In the case of Nashville, it precinctly frames a moment where politics, media, entertainment, celebrity, and ultimately stupidity began to intersect and steer the Republic away from intelligence towards ignorance. Honest Abe Lincoln had once called the land the last great hope of Earth. But it appears now that America exists in a perilous state, where facts and lies are not only interchangeable, but any differences they may hold are now alarmingly close to being irrelevant. Fellow taxpayers and stockholders in America, on the first Tuesday in November, we have to make some vital decisions about our management. Let me go directly to the point. I'm for doing some replacement. I've discussed the replacement party with people all over this country, and I'm often confronted with the statement, I don't want to get mixed up in politics, or I'm tired of politics, or I'm not interested. Straight after the opening credits, Altman cuts to a van exiting a garage, the doors of which are laden with posters, urging voters to elect replacement party candidate Hal Philip Walker as the next president. But while we hear Walker's voice as the van drives around the streets with loudspeakers strapped to its roof, we never, ever see him. Rather, he delivers a near-endless stream of inane observations, phrases and tired cliches to a public that is either so distracted by the music entertainment that they are not listening, or that they are too apathetic to notice what is polluting the airwaves. Because Walker never actually presents any specific details about his campaign, offers no promises, no vision, no manifesto, no declarations. The electorate is left with nothing other than their own construct of what he really means. The absence of any real substance leaves the public having to fill in the blanks for themselves. Which means that if they do back him, they are investing in little more than a disembodied voice in which they hear whatever they want to hear. And in his posters, they see the projection of a candidate in which they see whatever they want to see. Walker is not so much a personification, but rather a reflection of who they want. And in that single move, Altman linked the vacuity of celebrity culture with politics. The paucity of talent on display at the festival is the musical equivalent of the sheer emptiness of Walker's political message. Remember, the film was released when former Hollywood actor Ronald Reagan was still governor of California, and five years later would become the 40th president of the United States. 
Right now, a former reality TV star with absolutely no experience in public office is a Republican candidate for the White House. This was not a subject that was on anybody's mind until I brought it up at my announcement and I said, Mexico is sending. Except the reporters, because they're a very dishonest lot, generally speaking, in the world of politics, they didn't cover my statement the way I said it. But if that was all Altman did, he would have been falling short. After all, it is easy to criticise the entertainment industry and then, in the same breath, pretend that you, a filmmaker, are not part of it. Which may explain the inclusion in his enormous cast of Opal, a BBC journalist played by Geraldine Chaplin, who has travelled to Nashville to document the festival. Opal is so profoundly pretentious, she is not only incapable of offering any worthwhile insight into the music, but she also fails to register the presence of the election campaign. In that one move, Altman shows how entertainment has become the distraction, and politics a dereliction. Worse, the film shows how the media fails to examine an individual's credentials, be they an artist, a celebrity or a politician. Failure to do that creates an artistic vacuum, as well as a moral one, not to mention political. No one tests the truth of anything anyone is saying, so the truth no longer matters. It holds no currency. Lies hold no consequence. Instead, the only thing of value is TV ratings, the number of retweets you generate on your Twitter account. When Nashville was released, we were all recipients of news. Now, we are our own media outlets, with the internet the modern Tower of Babel. With the injection of celebrity right into the heart of political discourse, a new slogan has emerged, post-truth politics. The phrase first appeared in 2004, when Ralph Keyes published his book, The Post-Truth Era, Dishonesty and Deception in Contemporary Life. Keyes was writing about America's response to the 9-11 attacks, when the Bush administration fabricated evidence to justify their invasion of Iraq. But the phrase post-truth politics has gained considerable traction in the current election cycle. Be it ABC, NBC, CBS, CNN, Fox News, Breitbart or BuzzFeed, outlet after outlet after outlet has allowed itself to be used as a mouthpiece of untruths, innuendo and race baiting. Worse, they've all willingly provided a platform for bigotry, misogyny and downright lies. Donald Trump trashes the truth on average once every 195 seconds. Nobody has more respect for women than I do. Nobody. The abandonment of truth is a dereliction of democracy, and that Robert Altman's Nashville suggested such a possibility way back in 1975 only makes his masterpiece more relevant than ever. <laughs>